So does anybody care who's winning, who's playing the game today? So, so I, I walked in and, and a couple of guys were talking and they, they said, so who are you cheering for? And I said, well, the Chiefs. I grew up in Kansas City and I'm a, I'm a Broncos fan primarily, but I'm, a, you know, I'm cheering for the Chiefs today because I grew up going to a lot of games and all that. And Chad, our youth pastor, was like, oh, you're not a real Bronco fan if you cheer for the Chiefs. And, so I went home and got the jersey. I wasn't even wearing it, but I went home and put on the jersey to prove that I am a Bronco. I don't have a Chiefs jersey, but anyway, this is our forecast for what's going to happen next year. How's that? So next year, the Broncos will be in the Super Bowl. But um, hey, how about this? Is anybody in the room glad that there are more important things in life than football? Isn't that awesome? If you're new with us, let me catch you up to speed. We've been going through, since the beginning of the year, we've started a new series called Bible Favorites, where we are going through a look at favorite chapters in God's Word, um, or maybe in a few weeks we'll just look at favorite stories as well. But anyway, favorites, hopefully of yours, definitely of mine, that we are looking at together. We talked a few weeks ago about uh, the heroes of the faith, those that have lived by faith in what you might call the Hall of Fame chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. Two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah 40, the incredible chapter that talks about the size of our God, how big He is, that He can hold the Atlantic and the Pacific and every other ocean all in that little space in His hand. I mean, how big our God is, how therefore worthy of our trust and our faith He is. Last week, we looked at the story of, of uh, Noah in the first few chapters, or chapter 6, 7, and 8, and so forth, in the book of Genesis, and the lessons we can learn from his life. And today, I want to look at one of the Psalms, one of my favorites. A lot of people would say Psalm 23, if they had to pick one out of the whole book, they might name that as their favorite, um, and that is fantastic. But I want to look at Psalm 51 today. Some, if you have your Bible, turn to it. Psalm 51 will follow along on the screen as well if you don't have your Bible. But Psalm 51 is an amazing uh, chapter. But let, in fact, let me just do this. Let me read it for you as we get into it, and then we'll talk some more about it. Some people find Psalms a little bit confusing, like, you know, they're so personal for somebody else. It's like getting excited reading somebody else's journal. It's kind of strange in that respect. But I tell you what, while these are personal and wonderful letters written by an individual, most often David. Um, some of the others were written by others, but anyway, they are fantastic and things that God speaks to us through today as well. Let me look at Psalm 51 with you, and then we'll talk through it after we read it. It begins like this, verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts, you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. God's Word is powerful, and it speaks for itself, but there is power in understanding context. We started with the story without the context. Can we now go back and look at the context? If your Bible is like mine, and I'm talking your printed Bible that you have in your hand, it probably says um, at the top of that psalm something like this. Here's what mine said. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David... When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Many of you know that story. It's a fairly lengthy story, but for the sake of context and understanding this psalm better, let me recap and kind of tell you a little bit more of that story again. David um, was a young man initially um, um, as a son of Jesse a guy who was told he would become king someday. And, um, in fact, God didn't even want the people to have a king. But Saul became the first king of Israel. And David was just a boy at that point. And um, David eventually fought Goliath. And that's an amazing story in and of itself as just a young boy um, with Saul as his king. And... Sometime thereafter, Saul, who initially began walking with the Lord as king, he began by walking with the Lord and doing things honorable, began to slip and go his own way, do his own thing. And, and the Spirit of the Lord, which had been with him, left him. And Saul became a guy that really struggled, was tormented with a lot of difficulty and struggle in his life. And um, David began to rise, and, and he had been anointed as the future king and had opportunity to actually even kill Saul. Saul got jealous of David, wanted to kill him, tried to kill him. David had opportunity to kill Saul, chose not to, and just stayed on, in hiding for a long period of time. And um, eventually Saul was killed in battle, and David became king. And he honored God and did a great job as king in many respects until a certain point in his life. Let me show you in Scripture. Second Samuel chapter 11 picks it up like this. Uh, verse 1 of chapter 11 set, begins, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. So pause right there. At a time when kings, including David, probably should have been with his men, if there's going to be a war, the king should be there 
But David chose to stay home, chose to do his own thing, send everybody else out there. I'm just going to sit in the palace and enjoy my time at home. So problem number one there, the Bible says they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged uh, Rabah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, which he probably spent too much time in, and walked around on the roof of the palace with wandering eyes, clearly. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. She was simply doing that because they didn't have showers like we do today. The the most private place was the top of their building. Um, And very private, except to the king, who had the tallest place around and could see any and everybody. The woman was very beautiful. By the way, when I'm talking with young people, young men in particular who struggle with sexual temptation, I always tell them, you know what, the first look is not the problem. Um, Noticing that somebody of the opposite sex is beautiful is not a problem. It's the second look that turns into a stare that becomes the problem. And the trouble then began for David as he noticed not only that she was beautiful, but then he sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of uh, Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The answer is yes. But David still sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her, knowing who she was, knowing that this was adultery. So already at this point in the story, he has been, I think we would say, guilty of laziness, something the Scripture talks a lot about. Um, So he had been lazy initially. He then went down the road of being lust-filled. Then he coveted his neighbor's wife, and then he committed adultery, and then it gets worse. Uh, Bathsheba gets pregnant. She sends word to David, hey, I'm pregnant. And David then begins to scheme And dishonesty becomes the next problem as he seeks to cover that up, cover his tracks. He sends for Uriah, her husband, and brings him out of the battle back home and says, Hey, you are so amazing. You're such an incredible warrior. I I just want to bless you. This is a paraphrase, but I just want to bless you with some time off. So why don't you go home and sleep with your wife and be home for a day or two, take a little break, hoping that that would cover the tracks. You know, nobody would know whose baby that was anymore at that point. But Uriah, with great uh, desire to be honorable and devoted to his brothers who are fighting out there in the battle, says, I, I can't do that. I can't go into my house and enjoy such things. And he slept on the porch. Wouldn't do it. So David sent Uriah back to the battle with something in his hand, um, some instructions for the commander Basically telling the commander, hey, when the battle gets fierce, and make sure Uriah's at the front of the line, and when when the battle gets fierce, everybody pull back and leave Uriah to die, which is what happened. And so David didn't pull the trigger or swing the sword, but he murdered Uriah nevertheless. And now he is guilty of more. Um. He's added, of course, to all the other things we've already talked about, lying as well as murder. And at this point, then, he marries the grieving widow, Bathsheba, to have her as his wife to raise this baby that she's pregnant with. Well, at this point, before the baby is born, God sends a man named Nathan. Nathan is a prophet. 
And Nathan comes and speaks to David, and he tells him a story. And again, here's my paraphrase, but basically he says, David, let's sit and talk. I've got a story to tell you. There's this guy. He's a poor man, and he has this one lamb that he loves. I mean, really loves. It's, it's all he has. He's very poor. He doesn't have anything else, but he loves this one lamb. And in fact, it's like not only a pet, it's like part of his family. He just really treasures this one lamb. And he has a neighbor, though, who's very wealthy. Neighbor has, you know, countless lambs and other livestock and whatever else money can buy. And some one day this this guy recently, a traveler, came to stay with the rich guy. And the rich guy's like, well, we need to have a, you know, big feast tonight. We need to kill a, kill a lamb and have lamb chops tonight. And so let's do that. And Yet, rather than take one of his many sheep, he goes over here to the poor man, his neighbor, takes his one lamb that he loves so dearly and kills it and provides a meal for his buddy, the traveler, with this guy's one and only sheep. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, the Bible says, But David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Verse 7, Nathan is a man of God. He is a prophet sent by God to tell David this story. And I don't know this, but my guess is his heart was beating awfully fast at this point because you don't say harsh things to a king without knowing that the king can respond however he wants. The king can say off with his head just like that. There's no checks and balances with a king. He's in charge. Well, nevertheless, David said to, or Nathan said to David, David, you are that man. You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, uh, your, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all that, all this had, had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be yours, your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I'm guessing with tears in his eyes, I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. In the middle of this story, God said through Nathan, Yes, you have, and there will be consequences. Um, sometimes it means a person's life when they do such things. But David, you're not going to be put to death for this, but this baby is going to die. And beyond that, the sexual sin that you have struggled with is going to follow you. The apple is not going to fall far from the tree. And you will see this and chaos in that context within your family as time goes by. And the consequences were heavy. The baby did die. David mourned that. And 
story of Amnon and Tamar, incest and rape and chaos, all of these things continued. But David's repentant and humble attitude remained. David is called a man after God's own heart, not because he committed adultery and was a murderer and a liar and lazy and all these things, not at all, but because of how he responded to the sin. It is not the sin in our lives that define us, it is our response to the sin. And David responded with a repentant and humble attitude. And Psalm 51 is written shortly after this, a psalm or you might say a prayer between David and his God, who of course is our God. And while this is David's psalm and David's story, David's perspective, it is something we can all learn from and grow through as well. Whenever sin becomes part of our life and we are confronted with it and we need to handle it. In this psalm, there are really two themes that dominate. On the one hand, there is the overwhelming burden of guilt that has crushed the very life of David. He uses that word. He's crushed by it. I mean, is there any hope for one such as he, he might have asked? Well, with absolute trust in God, David dares to believe that the answer is yes. And then this second major theme of the, of the psalm is this, that he recognizes not one glimmer of hope is found in himself or anything that he can do as he stands guilty without excuse. But he does, in the middle of that, remember that the God who indeed detests sin is also a God of amazing grace, as we sing, a God of amazing grace and undeserved mercy. And this becomes the foundation of the psalm. There is hope. It's, it's like a coin. There are two sides to the coin. On the first side of the coin, there is the reality of sin. If you break the psalm in half, the first nine verses of it, the word sin or sinning or transgression or evil, such words are used uh, at least ten times. And God is mentioned only once. In the second half of the psalm, verses 10 through 17, the other side of the coin, the focus is all about God's mercy and God's love. In fact, the concept and the word, the, 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 the speaking about sin is all gone. God, though, is acknowledged six times in the second half. See, David, like the prodigal son that we read about in the New Testament, is ready to get up and go to his father declaring, I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I throw myself at your feet at the mercy of his father. So let's read it again. And this, with a, with a backdrop like this, hopefully the understanding and the ability to apply it or see it in our lives will be more clear. He begins with verse 1, have mercy on me, O God. If you pause right there, you're like, why? That's an awfully big ask. Why should God have mercy on you, David, after what you've done? Well, David's aware of that, and that's why he continues the sentence. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. It's not about me deserving it. It's about your incredible love, your mercy and love. Blot out my transgressions. 
Just hear the word please implied there. Verse 2, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Transgressions, iniquity, sin. Over and over such words are seen numerous. They are numerous. They are clear. They are transparent. David is not trying to hide anything. He's not sweeping anything under the rug. He's calling a spade a spade. He is acknowledging completely bare before whoever reads this, obviously most of all his Father in heaven. I am, I am all the above. I am a sinner. I am desperately in need of forgiveness. I am utterly lost left to my own. And in a similar way, we need to humbly call our mistakes what they are and admit, admit them. Don't downplay them. We need to come clean. So many people tend to, I've done this, hide behind the fact that there's always somebody worse than me. There's always somebody if I want to, I can look at, find in the crowd or somewhere in my sphere of influence that, oh, well, I'm not near as bad as. And therefore, you know, what I've done isn't that big of a deal because it's not near as bad as David doesn't do that. We should never do that. There is no such thing as a small sin, a little sin. Sin is sin. It is ugly. It is inexcusable. And it separates us from God. And it demands blood. David doesn't ask just for forgiveness. He asks to be cleansed. Notice that. He wants to be cleansed and washed. The word for cleansed here in the original text is the word used when metal is purified in fire. It's a process that if metal had a feeling, it would be painful. I mean, to go through the fire to be cleansed is a difficult situation. And David is saying that's what he longs for. And when he says washed, it's not like putting your stuff in the washing machine and put it on the gentle cycle. We're talking about a kind of washing that is all about scrubbing and pounding that clothing to beat out the the stains that are within it. And David is saying, wash me, cleanse me in such ways. For nine months or so, as this baby is growing in Bathsheba, David has refused to acknowledge his sin. Been in either denial or just disobedience. Nine months, the time that it requires, that is required for new birth, and yet this nine-month period was threatening to give birth to death rather than life. Proverbs 27, verse 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Look at that again. Think about it. Wounds from a friend, wounds, they're still wounds, but they can be trusted. Whereas an enemy multiplies kisses. You see, no one in the kingdom, in David's kingdom, wanted to tell David the truth. Nobody wants to go and confront the king with mistakes that he's made. You can bet that that everywhere you look, people knew what was happening. People knew who Bathsheba was married to, knew what had happened. They figured it out. Most people are smart enough to understand what has happened here. But nobody wants to say a word because, again, for self-preservation, you you tell the king, hey, uh, sir, do you realize what you've done is sinful it, it, it could absolutely be off with your head in just a moment. So, so people naturally tell the king what they think the king wants to hear rather than what the king actually needs to be told. So while David was living without joy, 
he, he acknowledges that in just a moment, as we'll see. He's living without joy. He somehow is continuing to live. He's eating and breathing and continuing to do his normal life in some respects. But his conscience is probably troubling day and night. He's probably struggling to sleep. He's, he's not feeling well. He clearly knows that he's apart from the Lord. He, he, he feels a disconnect. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you're going through the motions. You're going to church. You still are walking with the Lord in at least some outward appearance ways. But there's an emptiness. There's something broken. That's where David was at. And it all came to a head when he was confronted by Nathan. And it was then and only then that he finally confessed, I have sinned. I have sinned. He admitted not only to Nathan, but he writes to God, verse 4, as we continue, again, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. I deserve whatever is coming my way. I have no excuse, in other words. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In other words, I've been a sinner all my life. He's humbly admitting I'm so prone to mistakes and sin. A little bit of a sidebar. I don't think he's saying that babies come out of the womb sinful. He's saying babies, including himself, came out, come out of the womb with a sinful nature. You can see that in a two-year-old. Uh, you know, any two-year-old that fights, the first word they usually come up with is mine, you know, and fight for that and hold on to that. You see the sinful nature, but that's not the same as being sinful until they get to a place where they understand the concept. And Anyway. But David's saying, surely, you know, I've been a sinner all my life in this respect. And I, I would say this moment when, when, um, when, when he was finally confronted by Nathan had to be one of the hardest moments, maybe the hardest moment of his life. You see, repentance is not easy. Repentance is not enjoyable. Rob Gleghorn, as one of our elders, preached uh, a while back, uh, maybe a couple of months ago, and he gave a great analogy that I think is applicable here. He talked about how if you have an abscessed tooth it, and it needs to come out, it's painful. It's not a pleasant experience. It's worse in terms of the pain to have that tooth pulled than it is to just ignore it in the short term. But if you want to, in the long term, be better off, you endure the pain short term for that day, maybe a week or whatever of recovery, and you get that thing pulled out, and then you can finally heal and move forward. But in the short term, it's painful. It's not pleasant. And in the same way, repentance is not easy. It's not enjoyable. It's not pleasant. But it is good. It is healing. There comes blessing and refreshment from it. Look at what the Bible says in Acts chapter 3. Repent, the Bible says. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Sometimes you have to take a step back to take two steps forward. It is painful, but it is good. It is so good. I'm guessing there again were many sleepless nights and troubled days before and probably after Nathan's visit leading up to when David wrote and prayed this psalm of repentance which led to a renewed and beautiful relationship again, close and intimate relationship again with his God that he had had before and then lost. Verse 6, he says, Surely you desire truth 
truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. In other words, on the inside that matters even more than the outside. He recognized that unlike people who tend to look at the outward appearance as while the Lord looks at the heart, that's from 1 Samuel 16 in reference to, in the context of when Saul, his, David's predecessor, was being uh, looked at as king. Um, very clear, God looks at the heart while people look at the outside. David saw that, he understood that, and he knows that God wants to see that he be and that we all be the real deal. It's not about what other people see, other people think. It's about what only God himself knows on the inside of who we are. And David wisely feared what Jesus would later talk about in Matthew 15 when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He called the Pharisees who were hypocritical in that way, he called them whitewashed tombs. It is very conceivable to be a regular church-going person that everybody thinks is a saint and seems to be so wonderful and yet be empty and dark and dead on the inside. And David knew that that was a possibility, and he said, oh, dear God, I know that's not what you want. It's not what I want either. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to fool everybody, and yet obviously know that I cannot fool you. So verse 7, he says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. It's a beautiful concept. We see that also in Isaiah when God said, though, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. That comes from being authentic, being real. Not worrying about trying to please everybody else, but just saying, Lord, what really matters is my walk with you. So verse 8, he said, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. As David would later write in Psalm 103, he knows God can and will remove our sin as far as the east is from the west, and that's what he's longing for. That's what he's praying for and asking God, please, Lord, remember my sin no more. Remove it as far as the east is from the west. And God does that. If we repent of our sin, as we'll read in a moment from 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that happened for David. But, then, but David's not done with the psalm because forgiveness, while it lifts a heavy burden, is a wonderful thing. But he, I think he paused and said, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. What if, heaven forbid, what if the cleansed life that I now am going to live, what if, what if that should revert again to its former corrupt condition? What if I am forgiven for the moment and then slip back into that? way of living. Have you ever been afraid of that? I have many times. Well, David, I think, realized that possibility and was concerned about that, and so he offers a prayer of another kind. My favorite part of Psalm 51 is these are these three verses in the middle of it. I have memorized these. I've prayed them many, many times. There are songs written about them. I love these three. Verses 10, 11, and 12 say this, create in me, this is his prayer to the Lord, kind of post-forgiveness as he looks at the future, he says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, or a clean heart, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Oh, I love these three verses. First of all, let's look at them. Verse 10, the verb, he says, Create in me a pure heart or a clean heart. Create, that, that verb you know, indicates 
bringing something into existence that did not exist prior. It's like what the Bible talks about in Genesis chapter 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. David is acknowledging, I need a pure heart, a clean heart, and I can't do it. It's not something I can will into existence. It is only something you, God, can create. And I'm begging you to create that within me. And, and then the word for pure heart or clean is the concept of pure gold, again, being purified through fire, cleansed and completely uh, having all impurity removed from it. And he's saying, Lord, that's what I want. Please create that kind of heart inside me. And in verse 11, then we see the words or words from one who has walked with God, but who knows that the relationship has been shattered. For nine months or so, David's unrepentant and unforgiven sin has been an impregnable barrier between himself and God. And now he hopes, by God's grace, that the barrier can be removed and that he may once again be brought into fellowship with the Lord. To be cast away from God's presence is too dreadful to even contemplate. He says, oh Lord, I don't want that. Just as David had walked with God, he had known the presence of God's Spirit in his life. We read in 1 Samuel 16 that when Samuel, the prophet, had first anointed, um, anointed him as a youth to become the future king after Saul, the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then later it says, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And David, having watched that, a man, Saul, that he respected and admired, had walked with the Lord, and then the Spirit of God had left him as Saul pursued his own things and did his own life his own way. David's like, I don't want that. I don't want to be... What good does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul, as Jesus would say later? David's like, I see that. I don't want that. I need your Spirit in me, Lord. And in verse 12, when David asked the Lord to restore the joy of salvation... It's so important to remember that there is no joy in sin. There may be fleeting moments of happiness, and we don't have time to go into great detail here, but understand this, joy and happiness are not the same. There might be some overlap here and there in certain respects, but for the most part, we're talking totally different concepts. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy supersedes or transcends circumstances. Joy is beyond anything that happens to us. It, it, it's not based on what is happening around us. It's what's happening inside of us as God walks with us through what happens in life. And he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. In Acts chapter 8, there's a cool story about an Ethiopian eunuch who, who, who Philip meets on the road, and the eunuch asks Philip to get into the chariot with him. He's a wealthy guy apparently, and they go down the road, and we're not told the whole conversation, but Philip clearly leads this man to an understanding of repentance and giving his life to the Lord and surrender to the Lord. And, 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 and at that point, uh, um, they come alongside of some water, maybe a stream or something, a river. And, and the eunuch says, look, there's water. Can't I be baptized now? Obviously, Philip must have told him you need to be baptized. So, so they get out and they go down into the water and he's baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, the Bible says he went on his way rejoicing, rejoicing because of the newfound salvation. The joy of the Lord is our strength, the book of Nehemiah tells us. And the joy of the Lord is the joy of our salvation. 
David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That is what I want. That's what that eunuch had. And that's why he went away rejoicing. And that's what David is yearning for. So he grants or he asks God to grant him one more thing. He says, dear God, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Willing spirit. In other words, I can't do it on my own. It is not about willpower. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is the, the concept of self-control. The last of the nine things listed in Galatians 5 about the fruit of the Spirit. And he says, Lord, I need that. It's not about me trying harder. It's about you giving me a spirit that can help me be strong. Help me be able to be consistent and sustain that consistency. Well, from there forward, David goes on to talk about his need for ongoing commitment and growth. And we don't have time to look at all of that. But I want to finish by talking about the joy that David talks about. Again, Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Tells us the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing because he found the awesome joy that comes when you repent, when you walk with the Lord, when you are baptized, when you surrender all that you are, when you trust the Lord. My question as we close is this, are you longing for, are you looking for, are you missing joy in your life? Not just happiness that kind of comes and goes with circumstances, but a joy, a peace, a contentment, a confidence. A, a number of people from our church, we didn't publicize this, but uh, a number of people from our church, Chad took a bunch of young people the other night and a bunch of others, 20 or more of us last night, went down to Rocky Mountain Calvary Church and heard a guy, I wish I had a picture to show you, a guy named Nick Vojcich, I think is how you say it, he's from Australia. He was born without arms or legs. He has a torso and a neck and a head, but he has no arms and legs. He has tiny little feet that kind of come off of his torso about here, and that's it. And um, he tried to commit suicide when he was young. Because he was so upset, so frustrated. Why, God? Why would you let me be born like this? Doctors don't even have answers, let alone any kind of spiritual people in his life. But he has since grown in his walk and his willingness to trust the Lord. And as he shared his story last night on a table there, somebody picked him up and put him on the table and he can kind of with the little feet, he can kind of move his hips and walk around a little bit on that table. He stood there before us without any arms or legs, and he said, I don't understand all of that, but I trust the Lord. And when I learned to start saying, God, I trust you even though I don't understand you, then all of a sudden this joy came into my life in a way that I've never experienced before. This this defeatist attitude, this desire to die, want to die, and all these things have gone away, and I trust the Lord. And he challenged the people there that last night and the night before that didn't know the Lord to come forward to give their life to the Lord, to trust Him. Not because God has made sense and explained everything and told you all the answers to all your questions, but because God is God and He loves us. If for no other reason we trust Him because He died for us, and he said, I trust the Lord and I want to invite you to come forward. And over 150 people did so last night. And more than that the night before when Chad and some youth were there. And I want to encourage you as we close. I want to ask you if you would to stand with me. The band is going to come and lead us in just a moment. Stand with me if you would.
Let me close with this passage. I referenced it earlier. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. All of us are sinners. No one in this room is like, well, repentance is for that guy or that person, that lady, whatever. No, repentance is for all of us. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. But listen to this, verse 9, if we confess our sins, if we come clean and admit the truth, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, no quota here, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is the beauty of our God, our Savior, who loved us so much. Our sin demands blood, and blood was paid. And it doesn't have to be yours or mine because Jesus came to this world and laid down his life on a cross like that to pave the way for us, to pay for our sin. And all we do is say, Lord, I, I repent. I admit that I am a sinner. I'm lost. Create in me, though, Lord, a clean heart and restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Lord, help me to come clean and admit the truth, acknowledge who I am. I trust you. Whether I understand you or not, I trust you because of your love for me, the sacrifice you made by sending Jesus to die for me. Jesus' blood, as we are about to sing, ran red. It ran red as in pouring, dripping everywhere because of his love for you. Jesus didn't have to do that. Nobody took Jesus' life. He willingly gave it for you, for me. I would guess there are some here today who need to repent, who need to confess of something. Maybe, maybe it's not um, murder, adultery. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Or maybe it's a lesser sin, like one of David's other sins, you know, dishonesty or lust or, or I think we have a picture of some other options here put, put that up on the screen the next one we have there maybe, maybe yours is self-righteousness or envy the red things are the ones David struggled with maybe yours is one of the yellows or maybe it's the question mark maybe it's something not listed whatever it is Jesus died for you he paid the, the price the penalty for it and as we sing this song I just want to invite you if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at your heart I want to invite you as we sing to come to repent of that maybe you do so on your own maybe you come up here and talk to somebody maybe you grab somebody's arm beside you and say will you go with me and pray with me there'll be others up here that would love to pray with you including myself but let's worship our Savior our Lord with all we've got and if you need to repent of something whether it be for the first time and you want to be baptized today or whether that happened a long time ago and you just want to say Lord I just want to walk with you in fresh and new and sincere transparent and real authenticity whatever it looks like do it today today is the day of salvation why not today